prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for all the things that have gone before in our uh, relationship with you and in the history of your church. We know that everything that we're dealing with now as a church, same things that people dealt with 500 years ago, same things they dealt with 1,500 years ago. Different technologies, different languages, same issues, same human heart. And so I pray, Lord, help us to be able to understand where we're coming from and where we're coming out of so that we can best know how to live and serve you in ways that honor you. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Well then. We are obviously studying church history. Oh, see, I just locked this thing out. There we go. And we are in the in the Reformation. We've been working our way. We're, see, we're like we're like two thirds of the way down the list. It's kind of nice, which is which is good. It's only taken us fifteen years. No. Um, but last week we talked at length about Martin Luther. Uh, kind of let Martin Luther bomb the whole Sunday school. Uh, today we're going we're gonna to be talking about this explosion of the Reformation on all sorts of different levels. So, just as a refresher, which is good, because we have a couple people who weren't here before, that's great. So, the turn of the century into the 16th century, everything in the Catholic Church has really been having some problems. We've had a succession of really bad popes, right? I mean, it's really bad. We've had bad church leaders at various times, but we've had, we had Rodrigo Borgia as a pope, we've had... Uh, uh, who was absolutely corrupt. We've had uh, Julius II, who was incredibly self-serving. And then we've had the Medici Pope, Leo X, who bankrupts the church, paying for his, literally, circus. I, like, I can't get past that one. The, the, he's, he's not only a profligate, not only an atheist, but he actually uses church money to pay for his monkeys and panthers and white elephant that he likes to ride around Rome. So he starts selling everything off, selling statues of the apostles, selling cardinal's hats, selling furniture, selling indulgences, saying, if you give the church enough money, you can do anything that you want. That whole messed up concept of the indulgence from the Crusades has been taken to a new level of messed upness. Because now it is all about money and all about doing whatever you feel like doing. So... 1517, Martin Luther says, I can't take it anymore. A lot of priests start saying, I can't take it anymore. And he protests with those 95 theses that we talked about last week. Starts his own German church. And now, if you remember, last week we said he didn't, didn't start wanting that. That's not what he was originally intending. But it is what ends up because Rome decided to pick on the wrong priest. This guy's a nut. He's an absolute bonkers nut. He's a jerk that even the people who work with him and who like him disagree with a lot in terms of his attitude. But be between him being a bulldog who won't let things go and new technologies like the printing press, which get all of his good arguments out to everybody in their own native tongue, there's been reform movements. We've talked about the Albigensians. We've talked about the Waldensians. We've talked about... Um, Jan Hus, all these people who have come before him said, you know, we're not doing this right. Let's fix this. But this time they've got somebody who is really dogged about it. And they've got his words out to everybody. Instead of just being a small clump of people who happen to be right, he's getting airplay. And that's a difference. Suddenly things have changed. He's got a blog. However you want to view this. He can get his word out there. With a little help from his friend, and, and fellow professor, 
Philip Melanchthon, who we talked a little bit about last time. And as I said, my, uh, my professor of church history, who's actually a Lutheran, um, back at seminary, said Melanchthon was actually a better Lutheran than Luther ever was. Uh, which uh, he always, when he, when he said that, he always chuckled when he, when he said that. He always found that amusing. But the idea was Melanchthon was a systematic theologian. Luther was a lawyer, right? Luther sat there and said, this is wrong, and I can make a good case for why this is wrong. Melanchthon said, okay, but we're changing bits and pieces of Catholic theology without changing the whole thing. We probably need some theology behind what we're doing. Not just, well, that's crud. Okay, yes, and you can show why it's crud, but what's truth? And so he figures out the stuff behind that. He's the one that drafts most of that Augsburg Confession that we were talking about last week. He's a lot nicer than Luther. Luther tends to just call everybody a butthead. And you just go, well, you know, that's probably not the most loving thing. I'm not kidding. I mean, he, he used even a nastier word than that with that. But it is, that's the sort of talk that he, oh, Luther was foul mouth. Absolutely foul mouth, both in terms of, of uh, the mean things that he said, but also the vocabulary that he used in saying it. And as I've said before, much of Luther's diatribes were done over a frothy mug or seven of beer. So uh, he's a very interesting fellow, Luther. Not the most holy of fellows. And yet, like Samson, he's the thug that God can use, right? There's very little about Samson in the, in the Bible that you're supposed to go yippee other than the fact that God needed somebody to take out Philistines, and Samson was the blunt instrument that he could use, right? Luther's the blunt instrument that God can use. Melanchthon, a little bit more like a scalpel. Melanchthon, a little bit classier guy. He also, if you remember, Luther was extreme determinist. Absolute determinist. And Melanchthon said, you know, that doesn't necessarily work with the theology we're preaching. If we keep saying, you are saved by your faith, it's not by your works, it's by what God is doing in your heart. We probably ought to be part of that process a bit more. Um, maybe there's a more synergistic way of looking at this. Instead of saying it's all God, you have absolutely nothing to do with this, there's got to be some way that God's call to our spirits works with our free will to make a decision for God. He gives us the ability to make that decision, but then we make that decision. It's not works, it's, it's faith. In fact, he even gives it a, a, a name for that. He's like, sola fide, when, he, when Melanchthon writes. Only faith. It's only through faith that we're saved. Not by our works, but by the fact that God has given us this faith. So, there are, there are three solas that, that, that tend to be uh, associated with the Reformation. Sola fide, only by faith. Sola scriptura, only in scripture. Sola uh, gratia. It's only through grace that, that we're saved. Um, and those are actually coined by people like Melanchthon as he's going through. Even though sola fide is something we usually associate with Luther, he's the one that wrote that. Okay, so Melanchthon, cool guy. Luther, colorful, cool guy. The guy that, that, that God used to, to shake things up. He also considered the possibility that just maybe Christ wasn't actually physically present in the Eucharist. Because Luther was absolutely certain that the blood and body of Jesus Christ were absolutely there. God was there. You're eating God, drinking God. 
just like any good Catholic, believes that, except that he believed that the Catholics were wrong about that. How the Catholics thought that happened was horribly wrong. How everybody else but Luther thought that worked is horribly wrong. And that's about as clear as he got on it. When he was pressed on that, he's just like, I don't know. In fact, if you try to figure out how that works, you're throwing away the mystery, and that's an abomination to God. It just is. He's really there. And Melanchthon's like, you know, as I'm putting together this systematic theology, as we're going back to Scripture to figure this out, I'm not sure that he is. I'm not sure it works like that. And he's not even saying it isn't like that. He's just, he start questioning that. And so Luther says, that's it. You're obviously a follower of Twingley. You're, you're not a Lutheran. You've, you've chucked it. Which is interesting, because Twingley actually still believed that there was something going on there. But Luther was very dismissive <coughs> about all that. Because you got to remember, there's other stuff going on, right? It's not just Luther in Germany. There are other reformers, other Catholic theologians, other Catholic priests that are realizing that they're doing stuff wrong. So we talked about Twingley before. This is the guy who had been the chaplain for Pope Julian's Swiss Guard. So he saw firsthand in Rome. The Swiss priest saw firsthand how Rome had botched this. He's like, I can't... We all went to Rome and went, wait, this is the church? This is the, the mother of, the, uh, of, of, of Christianity? This is what you're doing to it? And he went back to Switzerland going, this is just wrong. So he went back and started preaching through the New Testament in Zurich. I'd say, he, he, when I say the New Testament, I mean he took up Erasmus's New Testament, which the church is sitting there going, that's naughty, it's naughty, it's naughty, just use, just use Jerome's Vulgate. Just use that. Erasmus went back to the Greek. Erasmus is like, I, tr I want to make sure we have the right Bible. I want to make sure we do this as well as possible. Swingley said, I don't know that I trust the church-approved things. I want to go through an actual honest-to-goodness Bible and see what the Bible says. It might not seem like a big deal, but nobody done this for over a thousand years. It's not the way they preached. This idea of picking up the Bible and every week coming to the next part in that Bible book expository preaching? Nobody did that. Why? Why would you say? Why that gotten out of habit? Yeah. Most priests up until about the turn of the century here had never read the Bible. They'd read maybe some verses here and there, but they'd never read a Bible. They'd never even seen a Bible. Monks had copies of the Bible, but even a monastery might have a copy or more or a copy and some portions. The Pope had a Bible. Some bishops did. But you didn't, you're a local priest. You don't have a Bible. Where would you get a Bible? Things cost more than you're going to make in your lifetime. So Chrysostom had read through the Bible and preached the Bible. Not much since then. In general, what they did was get up and tell you what they think you should do with your life. At best, it's topical based on the little bits of scripture that they did have. Mostly it was just, here's what you should do. This is why you need to trust the church. And they did it in Latin. So most of the people sit there going, I don't know. They, they could read their phone book. People wouldn't know. Give you a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. And people are like, I don't speak Latin. I have no idea what the guy is saying. In fact, up until Vatican II, the, 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 the relatively recent... Uh, meeting in the Catholic Church to decide to kind of upgrade Catholicism and, I don't know, maybe preach stuff in people's own language. Not only 
up until, you know, in the 1950s, if you went to a Catholic church, it would still be in Latin. But there were a lot of people who got very upset with Vatican II because they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear the Bible. They didn't want to understand the homily. They didn't want, because then it's not holy. If you want something to be holy, it has to be different, right? Isn't that what holy means? Holy means different from the world. Is that what holy means? Separate. Separate. Is that the same thing? I can say that this grape juice and these crackers are separate from the grape juice I may have with my breakfast on Tuesday, from the crackers I munched on on Monday afternoon. Does that mean these become functionally, physically different than everything else? Not necessarily. But they're holy. They're set apart. I do special things with these. These mean something different. But it doesn't make them different than everything else. But there are a lot of people who sit there and go, if, if a pastor uses contractions, if he wears jeans, then he's worldly. Jeans? Denim is worldly? How is that worldly? Linen, no. Denim, yes. That's, that's, that's bizarre, and yet we do that all the time, where we go, we have to act alien in order to be holy. And that is contrary to what the Bible is talking about. What Scripture says, no, you need to act godly in an ungodly world. That is what makes you alien. Not whether or not you use contractions, not whether or not you speak Latin. But are you starting with God's heart and moving forward? Well, anyway, he preached through Matthew, and then he went to Acts, and then he went to the Epistles, and then he went back to the Old Testament. And the more he preached, the more he realized, we're doing this wrong. This is not what the Bible teaches. We keep teaching lots of stuff that the Bible isn't teaching. And so he says, you know what? I don't think excommunication is something we get to do. I, I don't see it anywhere. Where we say, no, I get to decide you don't get to go to heaven. I, I don't see that infants are automatically damned without baptism. I don't see that we should be venerating the saints. In fact, I think it's idolatry. I think all this is wrong. I agree with him or not, but he, he's like, I, I just don't see this in scripture. 1522, he chopped up two smoked sausages in public during Lent and ate them oh. and distributed them. And specifically said, Christians are free to fast or not to fast. Because the Bible doesn't prohibit the eating of meat during Lent. Does it? What does the Bible say about eating food in, in Lent? Okay, what does the Bible say? Oh, let me back up. What does the Bible say you should do during Lent? Okay, what does the Bible say about Lent? Where does Lent come from? Thoroughly pagan. It's, it's the 40 days of mourning for Adonis because he was killed in a boar hunt. But if you mourn enough, then he comes back to life every spring. Or mourning the, 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 in, 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 in the, uh, or the area of where, say, Israel would be. Uh, that particular story, the guy is called Tammuz. And so you would mourn for Tammuz. So the Tammuz would be brought back to life, Ishtar's lover. In fact, in Ezekiel, we're told this got so heinous 
that people were doing that morning inside the temple. God took Ezekiel to the temple and said, this is a horror. People are spending 40 days of fasting leading up to the, the rebirth of their, of their uh, resurrection God every spring. This is a horror. By the way, that's, that's what Swingley noticed. He said, wait, good Lord, what are we doing? We're doing exactly what they were doing. Don't do this. The sausages launched the Swiss Reformation. They even refer to it as the affair of the sausages. You might sit there and go, well, that's just silly. That's huge. Well, you can't eat meat during Lent. Look, I'm eating meat during Lent. There's nothing in the Bible that says this was wrong. Changed everything. So I tried to find some good-looking sausages. Same year, 1519, big year, a Dominican monk named Martin Butzer uh, left his order to preach reform as well. He's like, you know, the more I keep reading this, the more I realize I think we're doing this wrong. Like Luther, like Melanchthon, like Swingley, he said, you know, we need to make sure that the Bible is the thing we based up on. Not just tradition, not just the theology that everybody else likes. That's, that's dumb. We need to make sure we go back to Scripture. And so he began to preach that the Mass is not re-crucifying Jesus, like Catholicism had preached. Every Sunday, you have to re-crucify Christ. You have to re-sacrifice him, and you need to re-ingest him. Otherwise, you don't remain a Christian. The Bible's very clear about that, yes? Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. It says well, don't do that. No, no, it says every, every week you have to keep doing that, right? Day in and day out. Time and again, the priest has to come in. And, now, I, I remember <coughs> several of those words in there. Maybe not in that particular order, but... There's a knot. There's a knot in there? Is there? Yeah. He's like, No! It's a poignant remembrance. You, you need to be reminded of what he did to you, did to you, in you, for you. But you don't re-sacrifice him. The Bible says the exact opposite of that. Now, wait a minute. Are you saying that, like the Catholics, when they do their um, communion, mm -hmm. they're re-sacrificing? Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. That's why excommunication is so scary. You don't get to re-sacrifice Jesus. Everything Jesus in the cross no longer applies to you. Because you didn't ingest him today. Do the Lutherans teach? Because I don't remember no. that. Okay. But, again, um, what Melanchthon and what Swingley and what other people said, and we're going to even hit this a little bit more next week, they looked at Luther and went, you, you chucked a lot of the wrong things about Catholic stuff, but then you kept strange bits and pieces of it that you didn't even know exactly where to, how to connect. For instance, like with the real presence of Christ in, 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 the, uh, in the Eucharist. You don't even know how that works together because you're only holding on to the, the ripple effects of some of the theology of Catholicism while removing the, the original theology in the first place. Um, you eventually get the Anabaptists to sit there and say, well, wait, why are we even still sacrificing infants? The reason we start sacrificing infants is because... <laughs> Baptizing infants. Why are we still baptizing? Same thing. Um, but why are we baptizing infants? Because we did that so that we would know that they were saved. Because baptism, the act of a priest making you wet makes you saved. You know, well, no, it's not the act of a priest getting wet that makes you saved. Okay, if we just change that theology, why do we still do this practice? And that's that's the sort of question that you're bringing up is the exact sort of question that people start going, well, wait, then why, 
why are we doing this? Which is exactly what we talked about last week with Luther, with the Catholic Church. They're like, well, if we don't do penance, then what's the point of purgatory? And he's like, good point. You're right, purgatory is absolute dread. Fling it to the wind. So he launched this Reformation in Strasbourg uh, in 14, uh, 1524, and then connected himself with Twingley in, in Zurich. He's like, yeah, I'm doing the same sort of thing here. In fact, he, 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 the more he thought about it, the more he's like, you know, I'm pretty sure communion is symbolic. There is no sacramental grace going on here. There's no sp uh, spiritual or, or physical connection with the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't see that going on there. So he starts teaching this stuff. He even tried for half a decade to get Swingley and Luther together. He's like, surely we can all get along, right? I mean, we're all basically preaching the same stuff. Can't we work on this? And Luther, being Luther, finally said, no, you're all dumb, and refused to talk to him anymore. Luther would later write, if you immediately condemn anyone who doesn't quite believe the same as you do as forsaken by Christ's spirit, they're just, they're losers. And if you consider anyone to be the enemy of truth, who holds something false to be true. They, they were looking for truth and they didn't quite get to it. Does that mean that they're automatically an enemy of truth? They're wrong. That means they're mistaken. It doesn't necessarily mean they're an enemy of truth. If that's the way you're looking at this, who, pray tell, could you still consider a brother? I, for one, have never met any people, any two people, who believed exactly the same thing. So are you saying you have to believe exactly what Luther believes or else you can't be saved? Luther, isn't that exactly what you were getting frustrated with the Catholic Church for saying? Is, is that really loving? Same here. I was going to say, isn't being forsaken by Christ's spirit? Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. All right, same time that all this is going on. Let's go back to world news. Same time that all this is going on, Spain is exploding in power, all right? Carlos I has become... King Carlos of Spain has become Emperor Carlos V of the Holy Roman Empire. Because there have been Charleses that have come before him. So, he's Carlos I, Charles V, if you want to do that. Or technically, Carl V uh, of the Holy Roman Empire. And suddenly, everything changes around here. Between, between Spain essentially taking over the Holy Roman Empire, and Germany breaking up because some people are supporting Luther and some people are not, all of a sudden... You get a lot of Spain. Spain is in control of Spain. Spain is in control of most of Germany. And Spain is in control of Naples. As God intended, right? All that putty, that's Spain. But then you've also got these little pockets that sit there and go, I ain't doing this Holy Roman Empire thing. No, I'm, we're, we're going Lutheran. This is ridiculous. We're not doing this. Everything starts breaking up. But then other things like Austria goes, we're going nuts. We're expanding all over the place. This is great. But it's not just Europe that is being changed. 1519, same year, right? Big year. 1519, I don't know how to pronounce Portuguese. So I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to call him Ferdinand Magellan. But that's not his name. His name is Fernando de... I don't know. I'm not going to try. Anyway, Ferdinand Magellan, which is not his name, but that's how you know him. Because you've heard of Magellan, right? Okay, not his name, but let's call him that. Because we're Americans, and if we can't pronounce your name, we're just going to get close and say, that's your name now. By Columbus. By Columbus, whose name really was... 
No, because that's not what his mommy would have called it. So yes. Is it? So it's for non. How do you pronounce the last name? Do you know? <laughs> okay, well, okay. tell me later. That's interesting. Like an N. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so he leaves in 1519 for Spain, you know, on the behalf of Spain, this Portuguese sailor. Spain is paying him to circumnavigate <laughs> the globe. Takes five ships with him, 240 men. I'm going to go all the way around the world, be the first guy to do it. He actually dies in 1521 in the Philippines. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But one of his captains... Uh, Juan Elcano does get to finish it. Does arrive back in 1522, back in Spain, with one ship and 17 sailors. Now, this isn't just a hardship where, boy, the seas were rough. A lot of these guys died because they they uh, they mutinied off the coast of Argentina. Three of his ships mutinied, and uh, Magellan put it down, had them drawn and quartered, and their remains impaled on the beaches where they were found 58 years later by Sir Francis Drake. Could you picture that? You can sit there and go, 60 years later, you go, oh, this is where that happened. You know, I, I heard about this, and you see all these staked out uh, body parts and things, you just go, ooh, I think we found Magellan's party. 60 years later. Same year, 1519, that Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés is going to Mexico. He's going he's gonna to do some damage there. Yeah, I know. Traveled to Hispaniola in 1504 at the age of 18, because the year before he almost got killed trying to sneak out of this married woman's bedroom that he'd been having an affair with, so he needed to leave Spain a lot. So he goes in 1504 and starts courting the sister-in-law of the governor so they can get political power there. Whatever else you want to say about Hernán Cortés, he's really, really good at making people like him. He is extremely smart. He is extremely good at tactics, and he is crazy charismatic. Everybody that ever went up against Cortez either lost or started to decide that they actually loved him. He's really, really good at this. Probably doesn't love that he at least in his picture doesn't look half bad. Oh, he's supposed to be. He was such a hottie. He was. He was a 16th century hottie. So he lands in the Yucatan with 11 ships, 500 men, 13 horses, several cannons, and then immediately scuttles his ships. Because he wants to make sure nobody mutinies. There's no way back to Spain. There's no way back to Hispaniola. We're here. And we're going to be here. So make the best of it. They were very motivated to make the best of it, right? There's no way back. So you make home here. Yeah. Was that their understanding when you left? I mean, that they were going to scuttle the ships? Right. That was his understanding. No, he didn't tell anybody else. Oh, yeah, that's what I, that's what so I figured. they went on the, this voyage not realizing they were never going to be able to come back home. Correct. So he took over the Spanish garrison, the Spanish garrison at Veracruz, because there are already, there are already Spaniards there. They haven't, just on the tip there, took over the Spanish garrison and took all their stuff. Out to the governor, said to the governor, I'm taking over Mexico for myself. So now he's got about 1,100 men, right, to march on Tecnochtitlan, which is the Aztec capital. By the way, the Spanish were actually supported by the local Native American tribes. Why is that? Why were other Indian tribes, why didn't they like the Aztecs? They look very happy here. Human sacrifice. 
Yeah, they did have this nasty habit of, of beating everybody and then uh, sacrificing their still beating hearts and pouring their blood down the front steps of their pyramids, which doesn't endear you to the neighbors, right? And they would do, well, like when they would, when they would uh, uh, consecrate a pyramid, they would do like 500 of these sacrifices in a day. I mean, and, 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 and I don't want to be horribly gross, but you, you got to understand, it's not just they kill you. They rip open your ribcage, pull out your still beating heart, so you're screaming as you're dying, five hundred times over. Why don't the other local Native American tribes like the Aztecs? I think they're all Oh, in, in fact, they're, they're step pyramids. To build these, every step, every corner, needs to be consecrated with the blood of an infant. This step pyramid has nine steps. That's thirty-six dead infants whose blood are, that are poured over all these things none of whom are Aztec. Do you understand why the other Native Americans go, Spanish, we like you. You're going to make us slaves? I can live with that. Because I live with that. You make my children slaves. Fine. They're not dashed to the rocks. I'm fine with that. Nowadays, we look back and go, oh, the Spanish are evil. Nowhere near as bad as the Aztecs. Nowhere near as bad as the Aztecs. It also helped that the natives thought Cortez might just be their god, Quetzalcoatl. He just might, because Quetzalcoatl, as legend said, came across the, the, the sea from the east as a, as a winged serpent, and then the moment his feet touched the, the, the beach, he became a white-skinned, blue-eyed, bearded man. They'd never seen blue eyes, and they didn't have beards. Why did... Where did this come from? It looks like it flies in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Details. Actually, uh, I have no idea what color eyes, uh, but some of the Spaniards definitely did. I mean, because if you remember, when you think Spanish, up until a while ago, when you think Spanish, they're blonde-haired, blue-eyed, German-speaking people, right? That's Spanish. Oh, yeah. El Cid had pale blue eyes, right? Spanish doesn't necessarily mean dark complected. Even today, especially northern Spanish, doesn't necessarily mean dark complected. If you saw this coming over the sea, wouldn't you potentially think winged serpent that when it touches the beach becomes a pale-skinned, blue-eyed, bearded man? And the boat disappears, exactly. All right, anyway. So the Aztec ruler, Moctezuma, allows Cortez into the city, gives him lots of different gifts, says, this way I'm going to butter Cortez up, and I'm going to kind of see the man's character. I'm going to endear myself to him, and we're going to see how we can manipulate him later on. But this is Cortez. He, he ain't played, he's the player. I mean, this is the way this works. There's no way you're going to do that. So he just saw, you've got lots of goods. You've got tons of treasure. Show me your treasure room. Boy, you have a whole treasure room? Yes, I do. I'm extremely powerful. Really? I mean, I, I, I've got a chest of treasure. You want to see how powerful I am? Are you more powerful than that? Let me show you the whole room. Come here. I'll unlock the vault. You can see how incredible this is. Check this out. What's with the gun? That's Cortez, right? <laughs> it's like the, um, which is the Israelite king that... Hezekiah. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yes. <laughs> that's not a bad analogy, actually. Cortez ends up going off fighting the Spanish. Why? Because they're here to arrest him. Why? Because he's been naughty. 
with Spanish stuff. That's right. So they sent like 1,500 troops to come arrest him. And he fought them, beat them, and said, want to take Mexico with me? And they said, okay. <laughs> so now he's got more troops. The people come to arrest him are now part of his groups. But while he's all fighting the Spanish, his own men slaughtered all, about a thousand people during one of the Aztecs' religious festivals. And now he came back, he sat there and said, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is so wrong sick bad. This is not the way you should do it. Having said that, he did say, well, then we might as well kill Moctezuma and take the whole thing. I mean, we, this whole, we're going to take it, we're going we're gonna to be governors, we're going to make them do all of our hard work for us. That was going to work until you did this. Now that you massacred all these people, we kind of have to kill them all. Uh, otherwise, there's, we're not going to be able to sleep at night. They're going to slit our throats. So let's just take over all of Mexico completely. When Cortes got there, there were 22 million people in a thriving culture. Now, granted, a lot of them were not happy, but there are 22 million of them. By the time you turn to 1,600, there's 2 million. 91% mortality rate among the natives of Mexico in the span of 80 years. That's kind of significant. Now, yeah? So the whole thing about at least we'll live didn't really not so much. Now, here's the thing, though. We're going to talk about this next time. Yes, the Spaniards brought diseases with them that helped take out thousands, if not maybe even a million, of, 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 the, of the Native Americans. And the Native Americans very kindly shared their diseases with the Europeans. They, they refer to this as the Columbian Exchange. As, you know, we shared diseases back and forth. Up until this century, um, everybody, every textbook you read says, um, 20 million Native Americans were killed by the sword or by the diseases that the, that the, the, the Europeans brought. That's not accurate. It wasn't European diseases that took out the natives. So we're going to talk about that next week. But that, that whole idea of, well, Spain is automatically evil because of all the people they killed. You no, know, most of those people died had nothing to do with Spain coming. But, other side of the world, because we got to keep moving. Other side of the world. The Portuguese... So they go, well, crud, Spain gets the west, we get the east, right? Portugal got all of uh, Africa. Remember how, the, how those treaties went? Portugal got all of Africa. They made sure that they got to the Philippines, or to, to the Far East, I should say, before Magellan did. Because Magellan was trying to do the whole world. They made a beeline over there because they wanted to get there first. So they got to Indonesia first and set up the first trading post and said, Indonesia's ours, we get the Far East. And they said just like that, but in Portuguese. <laughs> now, that's why, by the time Magellan got there, some of the natives already knew about Europe and, and, and were, were positive toward them. Some said, I'm sorry, we already have treaties with Portugal. And they said, we're supposed to kill any Spanish that we find. And it was kind of really colorful, because he's like, aha, we're the first Europe. What's the Portuguese flag doing here? <laughs> so it was a race to get to the Far East. Magellan foolishly went to the Far East going west and was second in the race of a two-person race. But, for years, in this one little island down in the Solar Archipelago, this one little island, the Dominicans came and built a church. A year later, the Muslims burned the church down. Um, for years, the Portuguese and the Dutch and the Muslims and the native pagans and the Dominicans are all jockeying for control. Who is in control of that section of Indonesia? What day of the week is it? 
and, and doing this for like centuries. This absolute unrest all the time. Okay. 1521, two years later. Another huge year, because lots and lots of stuff are going on all at once here in, in Europe and, and across Europe. 1521 is the year that Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Worms and said, here I stand, right? I, I'm, I can't be moved. I, I have to follow what scripture is saying. We went into that in great detail last week. That's the year that Pope Leo officially finally says, enough of you, you're excommunicated. Which ends up ultimately, instead of getting rid of Luther, it ends up creating a Lutheran church. In fact, it's at the Diet of Worms that uh, Johann Eck actually coined the term Lutheran, right? So the Lutheran church gets started here in 1521. Luther in 1521 then bestows the title of Fide Defensor, the defender of the faith. It's, it's, it's not just you're a good guy. You are the Knight of Jesus, with a K. The Knight of Jesus. You are the one who defends the faith. You are the guy. This is the same sort of historical title they gave to Charles Martel and to Charlemagne, right? You are the guy that holds Europe together and the church together with your wisdom, with your goodness, with your righteousness, and with your strong right arm. Who did he give this title to? Does anybody remember? He created this title for somebody in 1521. A very dashing young Henry VIII of England. And he's very dashing. Everybody always thinks, Henry VIII of England. Goes, no, no, when he was young, he was just tough. He was slender. He was athletic. He was square-jawed, big, beefy, horseback-riding, cool guy. He wrote music. He wrote music. He wrote, uh, uh, at least, I was going to say, um, at least, uh, at least uh, tradition says he wrote green sleeves, didn't he? Tradition says, but there are also other documented ones. Right. But I mean, yeah, he's, he does this. He also wrote the defense of the seven sacraments in response to Luther's theses. Everybody agreed, in fact, some people still agree, that was the best theological critique of Luther. Not just, we think he's a jerk, but no, no, let's look at scripture and see why Luther's wrong. Let's see why Catholicism is right. Stinking brilliant. Wrote it in Latin. Smart guy. Don't just think of him as a, as a nutball, chunky nutball. No, he's really, really good, really sharp. To which Luther wrote a very snotty response, very caustic. A response to which Henry's friend and Lord Chancellor, a guy named Thomas More, wrote another response. Just kept responding back and forth to one another all over the place. Now, were those responses getting printed then, too, all over the place? Mm -hmm. So, Luther, in, what, four years ago? Luther, his thing got printed everywhere. Everybody in Europe is reading Luther's thing. Henry, the king, the square-jawed, everybody-likes-him-cool guy, wrote this awesome book in response. Yeah, that's getting printed. That's getting printed with Henry's picture on it and phone number. You know, it's like, yeah, yes, this is so cool. Um, that, that, that we couldn't have a better poster boy for Catholicism than Henry VIII. This is cool. All right. Henry had issues right, with women. He had some marital problems, and, and people are at least usually familiar with this somewhat. There's this nifty little poem that, uh, that the, the English used to remember this. King Henry VIII, the two six wives, he was wedded. One died, one survived, two divorced, two beheaded. This is, this is how you remember this. Um, except it's not true. They didn't actually have divorce back then. 
Uh, there was no actual law for divorce, so they were annulled. What's the difference between a, a divorce and an annulment? Annulment is where they claim married. Yeah, it never really happened. We got married, but I never even saw her. We got married, we never consummated it. We got married, it never really happened. Do over. It's not divorce. I'm not kicking out my wife. I'm saying she wasn't really my wife in the first place. Um, it's that first annulment that really sets things off. And so it's worth talking about this in terms of church history. 1503, 11-year-old Henry got betrothed to 17-year-old Catarina uh, Catherine of Aragon, who was the widow of his older brother, Arthur. So Henry got stuck with her. They didn't know each other. They didn't necessarily like each other. Um, she was also the aunt of Emperor Carlos V of the Holy Roman Empire. Because she's from Aragon, and so is Carlos, right? Spain, 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 Spain. Spain's the going thing. Spain everywhere. All right. Henry says, I don't, I don't really have much of a relationship. They couldn't produce an, a male heir that lived. I think she had like two sons by him, both of whom died within a month of, of having been born, which wasn't uncommon at this time, because unlike the Middle Ages, the Renaissance is a really crappy place to live, right? I mean, it's, it's dirty, it's horrible, it's foul, medicine is lousy. You really want to have a clean, nice, good, decent time to live in, should have been about 200 years earlier. That, that rock. This one, not so much. They did have a daughter, Mary, that became queen. Queen Mary I but not a son. So he had an affair with her lady-in-waiting, a very manipulative woman named Mary Boleyn. What? No, it's Mary. But he decided he really liked her sister Anne. So he slept with both. But Anne, Anne was a little more ambitious. And after he got a bit of a taste, she's like, I'll only remain in this relationship if you marry me, make you, me your queen. Otherwise, I'm going public with all sorts of different things. V-Day defense, sorry. Oh, how's the Pope going to like that? Wonderful women, the Pope and the sisters. I know that there's movies about, you know, they're decent and sweet and manipulated. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you got to marry me. So he says, all right, I'm the V-Day defensor. You're the Pope. Hey, Clement. Another Medici, because we keep needing to have these Italian crime families in charge of the <laughs> Clement, uh, I, need, I need me an annulment from Catherine, because i got to marry somebody else. You're Clement, what do you do? This is the Fide Defensor. This is a guy you need to suck up with, to suck up to. You have regularly sucked up to him. Generations of folks have been sucking up to him. What do you do? You would, except she's Spain. Her nephew is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. To give, to sit there and say, cut her loose. And since this isn't a divorce, I don't need to give her any kind of settlement. We never really married in the first place. Those children were an accident by somebody else, apparently, because I never slept with her. Which means she's an adulteress, so cut her loose. You go, um, I can't do that. It's like, there's no way I'm going to torque off Spain. I'm just not going to do that. So Henry is going to have a problem. What do you do now? You need to get rid of the one woman. Otherwise, your next woman is going to smear you and drag you through the mud. What do you do? I know. Stick a Thomas in there. That's what Henry II did. 
I had a buddy named Thomas. I'll stick him in Archbishop. This will be fine. He puts his buddy Thomas Cranmer, elevates him to Archbishop of Canterbury. This will work great. And Cranmer says, by the way, the marriage is annulled. By the way, you get to marry Anne. They live happily ever after. Everybody wins. So the Pope says, I'm sorry. I have to go on record as saying, you're naughty. This was wrong. Not just that I can't help, but you are wrong. What you're doing is wrong, and now you're being censured. And so did Thomas More. His buddy Thomas More sits there and goes, this is wrong. You can't do this. You just thumbed your nose at the Pope. You can't do this. Besides, Anne kept miscarrying. She kept not being able to have children. Though one of their daughters, a girl named Elizabeth, did eventually become queen. So Henry said, you know, I never really actually slept with her. She's an adulteress. Any children we had, she slept with her brother. She's, an, she's incestuous. It's not just it's not just an, an adulteress. She's an incestuous person. She's evil. Execute her. So they executed her. So that she can marry Jane, so he can marry Jane Seymour. I've seen Dr. Quinn Medicus in the woman. She doesn't look like this. But this is this is back in the era when they used to name women after current movie stars. So, like, he married Jane Seymour, Shakespeare marries Anne Hathaway. That's the way that works. Henry learned absolutely nothing from Henry II and all those Thomas, that Thomas issue. Remember Henry II and Thomas Beckett? Remember what happened there? Where Henry's like, oh, this will be great. I'll get Thomas in here. He'll, he'll support anything I do. And then Thomas says, okay, now that I'm the Archbishop, I actually have to take this seriously. I can't support everything you do. And Henry ended up having him executed. Same thing here. Thomas goes, you... I was willing to do the annulment. But she's not an incestuous adulteress. You murdered an innocent woman so you could sleep with somebody else and get a male heir. You... This, is, this is sin. This is wrong. So Henry goes, I'm done with this. I'm done with dealing with church people. I'm the head of the Church of England. King. Forget the Archbishop. King is the head of the Catholic Church in England. Why? Because I'm sick of dealing with you people. Do I have any theological rationale for it? Give me time, I'll figure it. But for right now, nope, I'm in charge. Which also brought him into conflict again with Thomas More. Both Thomases that he put into positions because they're buddies of his are sitting there going, I have to fight you now. Thomas More had a public opinion. Nobody, nobody respected Cranmer. But everybody respected Moore. And Thomas Moore goes, you're wrong, and you're immoral, and I will write against you, and I will stand against you. So Henry had to have him jailed and executed, his buddy. This is the defender of the faith. Cranmer, feeling kind of painted into a corner, it's like, all right, we're going to try to retroactively figure out some theology for this thing. Why is it that we don't actually have to follow Rome? Why is it that we do this? Let's, let's justify this away. 1532, we officially say there's the Church of England that is no longer associated with Rome. How long ago was it that uh, Martin Luther posted his, his 95 Theses? What year was that? 1517. But you, you, you're ballpark, yeah. 1517. So, what, how long ago was that? 15 years? 15 years since Luther said, I think we're doing some things wrong. You've lost Germany. You've lost the Netherlands. You've lost England. 
you're the Catholic Church. You go, what happened? Realize, I've been here almost, what, 12 years now? So picture, in the span that I've been here, you went from, there, it's the Catholic Church and only the Catholic Church, and anytime anybody disagrees with us, there's some crazy little sect out in the backwaters and we get to throw a crusade on them. Two, we've lost whole countries. It's all falling apart. It's like dominoes. Which is when Clement excommunicates Henry. If you're going to leave the church, fine. Get out of the church. I left the church. You can't quit. You're fired. You can't fire me. I quit. Cranmer is not a theologian. So you've got to figure out a theology for your, I guess, reform movement? It's not really a reform. It's basically I want to keep sleeping with different people and get legitimate children. Who would you turn to to help you build some theology? For this. Any reformer systematic theologian that you know of that's out there? No, that'd be silly. Melanchthon's the systematic theologian. So you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me less than a decade ago, or no, they're there. About a decade ago, you wrote the textbook about why Lutheranism is evil. And now you're going to the Lutherans for them to build you a systematic theology for your church. I love history. History's fun. Because you look at it, you sit there and go, strange bedfellows all over the place. But instead of just thinking, oh, that's colorful, think, how much are you willing to backpedal to cover your butt? How much are you willing to say, oh, um, I don't care about this anymore? just to make sure that your sins get to be comfortable. What are you willing to do? He's going to go to the Lutherans. That same year, 1521, Portugal has got Indonesia, so Magellan claims the Philippines, named after Felipe II, Philip, Spain, claims the Philippines for Spain. That same year, Portugal goes, well, we're going we're gonna to take China. We took Indonesia, we're totally taking China. They, um, they went up against the Ming Dynasty and they're like, yeah, we're going to take out the Ming Dynasty and take all of their bases. Um, and, and, and they whomped them. China just whomped the Portuguese. And for, and for years this damaged the relationship between Portugal and, and China. Because Portugal, well, can we, can we be trade friends? You tried to invade us. You know, it's like, no, it doesn't work. So even though, even though Portugal, yes, very much so. So this is why Portugal's like, well, we're going to focus on Spain. We're going to do other different things here. Or to Spain, I'm sorry, focus on, I can't talk today. Focus on Japan. If we can't get China, we'll focus on Japan. China's like, yeah, hey, we like, uh, we like Spain. Spain goes, we can't have you. There's whole treaties about them. And the Dutch go, British meeting, we didn't sign a treaty. So China started dealing with the Dutch because Portugal was dumb in 1521. Which is where that comes from. See, history's fun. You get to put all the pieces together. Same year, the Ottoman Empire, a little bit more successful. All the Ottomans, this green? Oh, yeah. In fact, you can make an argument that this is becoming part of the Ottoman Empire as well as a vassal state. But the Ottomans are like, yeah. They move into Belgrade. 
Ottomans just keep taking more and more and more of Europe. This whole section is going, remember, these are vassal states of the Ottoman Empire. So for all intents and purposes, this is all one Muslim empire. So there's a time where you sit there and you go, yes, Serbia, Hungary, Poland, Austria, you know, Muslim countries. Militant Muslim countries. Right? But there's a reason why this area still has a lot of infighting between the Christians and the Muslims. Still, people are killing each other right and left about that. 1523. Um, you know, we've talked about Zwingli is, is, is preaching in, in, in Zurich. 1523, it, it kicks in really hard. He has a series of public dispensation, uh, disputations. I can't talk. Just read what I wrote. Don't listen to what I'm saying. Disputations with the Catholic bishops and with the vicar general, a guy named Johann Faber. He's like, I, we're going to publicly discuss this. He hasn't pulled himself out of Catholicism. He's a Catholic priest who's preaching that Catholicism is doing it wrong. And so the bishops and this vicar general come in to tell everybody he's doing it wrong. Let's publicly discuss this. So Swingley sets out the basic theology of this Bible-based church, this reform-based church. Faber walks into the disputation with his really nice robes and all of his... his uh, his uh, different priests and things, supporting his secretaries and things, and says, I'm Rome. Rome is right. It's Peter. How do you stand against Peter? Look at the majesty of Rome. I think I'm going to Zwingli has a Bible-based, biblically documented, carefully thought through, 67 major point argument. Blue Faber Public opinion totally swung towards Swingley. This idea that the, the Catholic Church has a, let's publicly put this man in his place. Scripture, 67 major points, logically put together, all interlocking and interlacing. You decide this in favor of like, If there was, this is one of the biggest blowouts in history in terms of a disputation. Because Faber was just totally not prepared for this at all. It comes off looking ridiculous by comparison. Worst thing that the Catholic Church ever did in Switzerland for them for themselves is to say it was publicly shame Zwingli. So Zwingli and his followers call for these major reforms, and we're going to do this in carefully considered ways. We're not going to change everything overnight, but we're going to change everything as it goes along. We're going to think this through. The mass, no more. We don't do mass anymore. We do church services, but not the mass. Not this re re-crucification of Christ. We're not doing this. We're doing this differently. All these icons, all these statues, all these things that people are praying to the saints, we're taking those down. That's idolatry. Most we'll be able to do is a rough-hewn cross. In fact, we're getting we're getting rid of all the all the uh, gold and silver, silverware in the churches and stuff. We're going to sell them and give it to the poor. We're going to have wooden cups, wooden plates, because we don't want anybody thinking that we're somehow idolatrizing any of this. We're going to remove all the music in the service. So the sermon will be the focus, as God intended. Right? No, 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 no. It's all about the word, man. It's all about the word. German language Bible is going to be commissioned. We're going to make this prophet's Bible from Zurich. And services are going to be performed in, in German. So that people can actually understand this stuff. 
This is the reform, man. This is working, right? You agree with all that, don't you? There's, there's some, I can see where you're going with some of that, but I don't agree with all that. Because can't, can't wooden cups and plates be idolatry? How is that possibly idolatrous? How can you make an idol out of that? An amazing number of people do that, by the way. I'm far too humble to do something like that. You say that very painfully. You know, you've, you've made an idol out of that. And the whole idea of taking all the music out so you can just focus on the ego, actually, they even talk about music being part of the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, much less the Old Testament. So, no, you, that's a little silly. Still, at this early part of the Reformation, it really is very similar to those first couple of centuries of the church where people are like, so, so what exactly do we believe and why? They've gotten so out of the habit of thinking it through. So out of the habit of reading scripture, they're having to redo that all over again. Wait, what do we do? Why are we doing that? Because remember, they're, they're trying to figure out, this, is, it, is it one substance? Is it similar substance to Christ? Is Christ the same as the Father? Is he very much like the Father? Is he connected to the Father? What is it? Remember those early, early couple of centuries where they're going, how does this work? They're having to do that all over again. Wait, how does this work? And so Luther is doing some things, and then goes, no, I don't think I do want to do that. I'll do it this way. Zwingli goes, yeah, we're going to do it this way. No, wait. Yeah, no, this, no, we're doing it this way. As time goes on, they're having to figure this stuff out. And more and more priests are coming alongside former Catholic priests going, we need to change things. There's a Catholic pastor, um, not a priest, but he's a, a preacher in a Catholic church, a theologian, named Balthasar Hutmeyer, who came to Zurich to consult with Zwingli. He even sat in on the disputations and helped with the disputations. He's like, I want to join this reform movement. Take it back to, uh, it's from Augsburg. Something like that. Anyway, but he's like, okay, if we're saved sola fide by our faith, not by what we do, but by faith, and if we should build our theology sola scriptura, only by scripture, and since Twingley said, if, you're, if you've got an unbaptized child, you've got a 10-year-old child you want to baptize, we really need to instruct that kid before we baptize him, right? He needs to know what he's doing. Well, then shouldn't we restrict baptism to people who actually have faith? If we're only saved by faith, shouldn't people be baptized only if they have faith? If you agree that an unbaptized child should be taught before they get baptized, then why are we baptizing infants? Does scripture ever have us baptizing an infant? Is there any practice in scripture other than that? Does scripture actually even say that it's the mark of a pledge of good conscience? Why are we, why are we baptizing infants at all? What we need to do is baptize believers, whether they've been baptized before or not. If, they need to, if they've already been baptized as an infant, we need to rebaptize them so that they can make a conscious decision in this baptism. Anybody know what the, the word for rebaptizing somebody is? Anabaptism. And this is the beginning of an Anabaptist movement. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Everybody coming along going, I see what you're doing, but maybe we ought to do it this way. I see what you're doing there, but maybe we ought to do it this way. Oh, we totally agree. We totally agree that we should be scriptural. Scriptural, absolutely. We totally agree that that's the presence of Jesus isn't actually physically here. No, I wholeheartedly agree. You're exactly right, the Catholics. I don't understand what they're doing. That whole thing with penance. I know. What's that all about? No. Live a life that honors Christ just because you love the Lord. Exactly. Exactly. We need to honor Christ in what we do. Exactly. Live a life that honors Christ. Exactly. Absolutely. We should pray for one another. I know. They made it illegal to pray. What's up with that? That's just crazy talk. 
Let's do this in our own language. Totally. Absolutely. Do things by faith. Follow scripture. Exactly. You know, baptism is a mark of being saved. Right. Well, we're only saved by faith. Exactly. Well, then baptism should be for people who, who have faith. Burn in hell. Do we ever do that? Even now? Sit there and go, we agree on so much, but not this, so I hate you. <laughs> now, I'm not entirely certain what next week's Sunday School class is going to be titled, but I am going to fight the urge to call it Lots and Lots and Lots of People Die. That's the affirmation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that your word is immutable. Your word is unchangeable and unchanged. I thank you that you can be the rock that we can stand on. And I thank you that even in the midst of your unchanged, unchanging word, that you can, you can give us the ability to come at things from different angles, to see your truth in multifaceted ways. And I pray, Lord, help us to grow with one another, help us to love one another well, help us to hear one another well. And Lord, I pray, keep us from all the things that we would do to justify ourselves, even if we have to step on one another and step on your word in the process. Help us, Lord, to all be defenders of your faith. And we give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.